Welcome to Outside the Glass, the Squash Podcast. I'm your host, James Zug. So, uh, one of my favorite places on the on the internet to uh, buy squash equipment is squashproshop.com. They carry a great selection of squash equipment from all the top manufacturers at the lowest prices. They offer fast and free shipping on orders over $25. For the best selection, prices, and service on the net, visit squashproshop.com. Last fall at the Delaware Investments U.S. Open in Philadelphia, Chris McClintock and I sat down with Paul Selby. We had a wonderful conversation about um, all matters great and small, and um, Paul, in his usual way, doesn't mince words about what is uh, what is right and what's not so right in our game. So uh, enjoy our conversation. It'll really uh, make you think again about uh, what we can do and what we should be doing. So I was 12 years old, and uh, the guy that sat next to me in class, he, he said, uh, do you fancy coming to see me play squash and maybe join in? So I said, don't know what it is. So I went along, had a lesson, half a lesson, which I paid for myself. Parents weren't interested, um, and I really liked it. And I, I found it quite easy at the time. Mm. So I used to use all my milk round money, my paper round money, to pay for the lessons because my parents wouldn't do it. Were you playing? Were you playing other sports that this was distracting you from, not, or was no, it? not really? Uh, we did football at school, but I, I wasn't in the first team at school, so not really. So it was something I liked, uh, and then all through my teenage years, because clubs in England were so expensive, parents wouldn't join me with a club. So I used to break into a club um, <laughs> in a school opposite my road. There was a private school with two courts, mm. and uh, they couldn't see the courts from the schoolhouse. Uh, so I used to climb on the lobby and go in through the window, turn on the light and just hit a ball up and down. So the club that you went to that first day... Yeah, was a very famous what club. What kind of club was that? It was a very famous club in London called Wanstead Squash Club, mm-hmm. uh, which was a private members club, which mm. most of the clubs were in the UK, right. so in 1969. Right. Mm. Um, this was before the commercial squash boom where le- you know, before leisure Jonah, centers were... Yeah, yeah. before Jonah really... Opened yeah, it up. got with Jeff Hunt, really opened it up. So these were like an all-white type club. Um, they used to play in the very famous uh, Cumberland Cup in London. Mm-hmm. Very famous club, Neil Harvey's club, mm-hmm. it became. Uh, Paul Wright, which was a national coach, it, it, he was a coach there mm. at, at one stage. So it had a lot of history, the club. And it had a expensive. bunch of courts, right? It had it, Originally, um, it had, at that time, it had eight courts. Mm. And then oh. they built uh, two more with a glass back when Neil went there. Um, so it was glass with the seating that pushed back and then they built two more courts right. at, at the end which were not very popular so in the end they had 12 courts Wow! Yeah, and then it's gone now it's an old people's, right. old people's home and then, and then from there what was your journey you know um, so I just sort of like played around a bit um, through my teenage years got on court whenever I could which wasn't that often um, I would have loved to have played more if I if I had my time again. I would have liked to play junior tournaments, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, but there wasn't as much of junior tournaments, right? It was it was a smaller, more exclusive. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't it was an exclusive club to join into. Yeah, yeah so it it wasn't open to most people. What town was this? So you I grew up living, in I, London. I, mean, I was living in East London. In East yeah, London, yeah, which is where once it was. So I was yeah. a bus ride away from it. Um, the club, the private courts, which were opposite me. Um, we're only 200 meters or so up the road, so I used to um, continue to break in because it was an easy thing to do. 
and, um, and play alone. You never would bring a friend and. and... Uh, no, I used to be on my own actually. I used to just actually solo practice ridiculously. But um, and, then I, and then I went to college, mm. and one of the lecturers at college used to play. So after I left college, um, I got involved in playing games with him, um, mm. and I got somebody else in, involved. So I played a little bit when I was about 17, 18, and decided to have lessons actually. I was a, a quite a famous club in the, uh, coach in the UK called Nick Drysdale. Mm. And uh, I started having lessons with Nick. And I said I wanted to be a professional player when I was 17, um, which was obviously not going to happen. I had no money, my parents weren't interested, and there was no route to do it. Right. Um, so then when I met my wife when I was 21, uh, she was a, um, a t- she played tennis. Her brother's, her brother's a full-time tennis professional now. He used to play uh, on the circuit. And she said, why don't you join? You know, she asked me, if, do I play a sport? I said, well, I can play squash. So she said, well, why don't you join the tennis club and squash club w- w- where I am? Mm. So I said, okay. So it was Connell, which again, was where Neil Harvey had all his Peter Nichol mm. and that. Yeah. This is pre, pre, pre that happening. Uh, and I had to play, you know, I had to play the club captain. So I'd not played any squash, really. For a couple of years. Properly, ever. 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 Unless you had to break into a club you had never really played. Exactly. <laughs> did, uh, did you ever get caught breaking in? No, never. The schoolhouse was so far away that it was easy to get in because it was just a, an easy window. There was no alarms. So yeah, I played, I played the club captain. Yeah. I lost, but I didn't play that badly. And mm-hmm. he said, no, we'll, we'll accept you into the club. And, and I joined. Nice. And I joined, so I was 21, and then from 21 onwards, I've played ever since. Yeah, yeah. I played league squash straight after that, and I only stopped playing league squash about three years ago. How old are you now? I'm 58. Wow. So you were playing league squash in your 50s? I was playing league squash in my 50s, yeah. yeah first, great. Essex first team, yeah. And winning still. I could play now, but I've got to have a knee up, so, uh, so I might think about it. But mm. I might think about it. So what, how did you introduce your kids to the game? Well, obviously I played a lot from when, when, when we moved sort of near Stansted Airport, which was sort of like north of London. Um, Nick Drysdale actually, actually recommended me to a club called Bishop's Altford. And um, there was a waiting list to join and I went to the club and Nick had already found the manager and so I didn't have to go on the waiting list. So I was obviously playing okay by then. And so they, they put me in the leagues and I joined the club and I've sort of been associated with that club mm. ever since I was sort of 22, 23 years old actually. Daryl started playing there when he was four and a half mm. um, and he's got a court named after him in the club. So um, so what, what Chris asked me was about how I got the kids involved. Well, I just sort of introduced them to a lot of sport because mm. my parents hadn't been interested in sport. I thought it was, it was in, implicit that I allowed my kids to get involved in as much sport as they, as they possibly could. So I took Darrell up to the squash club and no idea about coaching. Obviously I played for the teens, but um, so I just took him on court and showed him how to hit a ball. And he sort of like turned out sort of all right. I did the same with Lauren. So she was about five when I did it. Mm. And Elliot was probably six, six, seven years old. Not even that probably when I did it with him. And all I wanted to do was make sure that they, they had a sport I mean, Darrell's played football, as most people know, and he's played, played England schoolboys uh, with Peter Barker. Lauren's played very high-level hockey, so they've obviously liked their other sports. That mm. was big time into golf. I then That's how I got involved in coaching, because I needed to think that I was coaching him properly. Right. So I decided to take a coaching qualification, and then I 
each time he got better, I thought I'd better get my coaching qualification <laughs> up, <laughs> uplifted. Right. So I went from level one all the way through to the highest level and get level four. Hmm. Basically helping them along the way. And then um, I decided to do it full time when I was 14. It's one of those moments when you're 14 and think, okay, I'll change, change career. What were you doing before that? I had a company doing interior design, actually. Really? We used to do the interiors of lots of uh, restaurants and hotels and pubs in the UK. Huh. And I'd done that for a long time, so... Do you, miss, do you miss that world? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. How do you manage expectations? How do you, um, you know, kids have these, uh, uh, you know, they're getting pushed into sports. You know, it's really the parents that are making them do it or, you know, getting ownership of, this, of, of the sport, doing more than one sport, uh, you know, setting goals, expectations. How do you, how do you since you've had a, a group of successful kids, who are all involved in the game, who love the game. Like, how did you, how did you raise the kids in, in, in what we would say is like the right way? I never pushed them into, into playing, ever. Possibly the only time that I'd ever may have done that is where they've committed to do something mm. and then they wanted to back out in the last minute and that lets people down. So I'd never let that happen. Um, but if Daryl didn't want to train, then he didn't want to train. I mean, I don't think many people know this and they never believe it, but it's true but sometimes Daryl would not play for a month and he'd go and play a junior tournament and he hadn't played for not, a month haven't even picked up a squash racket wow and the first couple of rounds he was always a bit dodgy but he'd somehow get through to a final or a semi-final because um, he just didn't want to do that and, and, and he's like that now he's like that now he probably doesn't train as much as some of the other guys um, and who knows if he trained properly if he trained properly inverted commas as some of the other guys, maybe he would have been a regular top 10, maybe even higher. Because he's obviously got the ability, it's, it's that drive that's that. But he wants a, a work life balance. Yeah. And I think that's what I always instilled with them. That if they didn't want to do it, then they don't have to do it. Mm. And if you look at it now, all my three kids are still involved in the sport. Right. So that's, that's interesting. So that's interesting. <coughs> you know, Lauren's still massively involved, involved in coaching in the UK, mm. um, and she played on the circuit and enjoyed it but she's now enjoying her coaching mm. Elliot's obviously now playing a few tournaments but he's obviously involved on the administration side with the, with the PSA uh, and my wife although she was a tennis player and she has played a bit of squash um, and there's a little funny story with that that I did give her a, a squash lesson as a, as a birthday present once <laughs> uh, which you will remind anybody who, who uh, might be listening to this um, but she, she can play uh, and she's heavily involved in the UK mm. in squash, so you know, we're, we're a squash family uh, and it's important that they continue to be so because it's a good sport, they've enjoyed a lot of success from it yeah. and failures as well, but it's a good sport and I think they want to continue that and now with my little grandson who gets a hour lesson with me every week, um, we sort of maybe continuing the dynasty. Yeah. yeah. Another generation. Another generation, but it's, I, I think the thing, the question that you said initially was uh, it's trying to keep the kids interested in the sport the success is not that important mm. not really if you get success from it hey that's great but if you enjoy your sport sports for fun it's also an entertainment when it becomes professional and I think a lot of people forget that that the people who pay and watch these guys and girls play are coming to be entertained and the sports people that you know here at the US Open should always remember that they're entertainers and the great players are always the great entertainers 
We think of people like in the past, Adrian Davis, the Welsh wizard. Now he would enter, he'd love to entertain. They're like clowns on court, some of them, and and people laugh and people. You know, and I like the banter between the referees and the players, and they've seemed to stop that. Mm. The referees become too serious, remote from the players, yeah. and I think that actually takes away from the game. Now Daryl likes the banter. If you, you know, anyone's heard him on PSA Squash TV, he likes, and so does Peter Barker. They like that little. No rapport with the referees, and now there's there's none of that. Mm. I think that's diminished the game a little bit because it's taken away the entertainment value. The public want that. Mm. I know the IOC might not want it, but hey, right. hey ho, I don't really give a monkey's uncle about the IOC to be honest. Yeah. Um, so let's bring that entertainment back. Um, so the kids enjoy it, and we don't want bad mouthing, and we don't want that sort of stuff. But we want a little bit of interaction. Yeah. Because that's what people want. And we also want the crowd to be into it, and you know. That's what people buy waving, tickets for. Shouting, singing, like you want. You want it to be passionate. You don't want it to be silent. No, I mean they're sports people, and they come. You know, if somebody's never seen the game before, and they come along and they see two great players play with nothing on their faces, yeah. and they're just great shots, they don't understand it. Right. But if they see some entertainment value from that, they understand the squash is great, the sports are great, and they're yeah. very athletic, and they're they're great sports people. Yeah. But they also get some entertainment value and they might want to come back again. Right. That's how you engage crowds. And I think that's how you want to grow the sport. But so you're saying, you know, you didn't sit down with Daryl and Lauren and say, you're going to be top 20 by age 20. Or, you know, you didn't have, you, you let them uh, drive, the, drive the whole ship. We never had any plan. Mm. The plan was we just, we used See to See where the next step was. We used to, mm. when we lived uh, in the middle of Essex. Um, we used to go down to a private school, very famous public school called uh, Felsted, and um, they had four courts there. And we used to go down as the four of us, Karen would be at home, uh, and we'd play and we'd just muck around on court, three quarter court. We'd have some doubles at the end. And these when they were in their teens, mm. um, because we just like doing it. Uh, and, you know, as the kids started beating me, then obviously that. That didn't go down too well because then I was the fourth best, having been the first best. You know, Elliot's beaten me in a club final before, but it was all about enjoyment. It wasn't like we're going down to train because yeah. the tournament's coming up mm. or whatever. Mm. It's because we're going down and we get told off because we're an hour back late for dinner or whatever. But the idea was to have fun. It wasn't. It wasn't any plan to be this or that. Mm. That just happened along the way, mm. um, and I think that's a much better way to be. I do it with all the kids I coach. There's, there's not, you know, I, I still go on court 35 odd lessons a week, mm. and a lot of my performance kids, you know, in inverted commas, kids, yeah. kids who play a lot of the tournaments, right. and you know, who get success, who are British champions and things like that. But the element is that we have quite a lot of fun. Yeah. Not, you know, the driving factor of you are going to be A, B, or C. Right. That would maybe the end result, but it's not the thing that we work on all the time. You know. But it's hard. A lot of the parents don't think that way, right? I think, the par- I think the parents are part of the problem a lot of the time. It's not only to squash those, it's all sports, whether we get American football in England, it's soccer, uh, that we get parents on the sidelines. And, yeah. and I've seen it in squash, I've seen parents hit kids around the face in squash. I've seen some horrible stuff in, uh, from parents. I've seen horrible stuff from coaches, actually. Um, and that's not the side of the sport I really like at all. You know, even the kids I coach, if they lose, they lose. You know, I, I never I got the kids between games when I coach them. Um, it's, I never go at Daryl. You know, we we have some bizarre conversations between between games. Like what? I'll give you one example because I uh, I know that people know this one. 
Uh, that was uh, beaten Nick 2011 uh, national championships. So Nick was the world number one. Daryl won the national championships. Following year, he's playing Nick in a semi-final, and Nick was playing a lot better, and Daryl was playing probably not quite as good. So it's it's close, but it wasn't probably going to be a result. So I'm sitting sitting with the England juniors, uh, and then between between the the games, I think it was between the last game and uh, he lost in four. Um, we are in a conversation and the guys all said to me, well, what were you telling Daryl then? I said, uh, you won't believe me. And they said, no, 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 go on. It was Richie Fallows actually, and George Parker. And they said, well, what are you saying? I said, well, we're actually discussing about buying a new stringer machine. For the club? <laughs> for us, no, for, for Daryl, for, oh. for his records. Uh, and they went, no, you won't. I said, no, 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 we actually were. Uh, and they still don't believe me, but actually, I think George Parker's asked Daryl since, and that was absolutely true. So we're having the, the biggest, you know, tournament in the UK for nationals, and we're talking about should we get an electronic stringing machine, which we bought straight <laughs> afterwards. We did. <laughs> we went to the stringing guy, and we already discussed it, and and we bought it. So that so, but that that sort of conversation happens a lot mm. because sometimes that's a way to relax people, giving them a specific thing about what he should do mm. probably wouldn't have made any difference right. but right. him going back on actually probably played better in that game right. had I given him specific instructions so we do have a bizarre relationship when it comes to talking between games if you see we always walk off Daryl never sits down mm. if he sits down there's something wrong um, so we're always off um, in Q- uh, Qatar a few years ago they had um, the camera on an umbilical cord and uh, he was playing Pilly and uh, so we walked off and round the corner and, and the camera could... wouldn't reach right. uh, and the guy you can see him straining to get a camera around the corner really bizarre but uh, so we always walk off and we and we, I always wait and let him I, he'll tell me when to yeah. say something right so it's always been that sort of relationship and I think I use that same thing with the kids I coach hmm. what are some things about the relationship that have evolved over the years and what are some things that have remained the same uh, we've never had an argument actually. Um, you now people say, "Is it easy coaching your son between games?" Mm. Um, he's okay. Some of the biggest. He's obviously some, played some of the biggest games. You know, the the games had in the last few years. You know, beating Gaultier in Mumbai, two thousand and nine or ten, um, first round. <clears throat> you know, they're, the, they're big games. They're big, big games. Um, but we always had the same relaxed conversation, even between when he when he beat Nick in 2011 in the Nationals. I, th- I remember saying to him, um, I didn't give him anything in the last game. I just said to him, just go and enjoy it. See mm. if you can beat him. That was it. And he did. Mm. And he could have gone either way. And I was sitting with Hedley, actually, um, Nick's dad, which we used to sit together quite a lot. Because Your that's, the way, that's the way it is, you know. Right. Um, so it, it's, it's having a, a relationship that allows that to flourish. So we've never had any crosswords. Mm. The same with Lauren, you know. Lauren, the girls can be a, a little bit more difficult to coach, uh, but just as, just as easy. Mm. It, it has to be relaxed. You can't start going down people's throats mm. just because they're losing. Why are they losing? It's not their fault. They don't want to particularly lose. In the training, <clears throat> are you are you you know different than on the on the day of the match? Uh, yeah, we're pretty different. Uh, I mean, we come up, we came up with lots of little ideas of games which people use now. Actually, we came up with flosh. What's that? Floor squash. <laughs> they even use it on camps, actually. 
Um, I mean, with uh, playing soccer with the ball or what? No, we play, we play a game in the front half of the court where we hit the ball off the floor to the front wall. Um, just because we started mucking around, we called it flush because it was hitting off the floor onto the front wall. So we called it flush. Um, we did that when it was about 12 or 13. And we still play it now. Yeah. Uh, we used a racquetball to start with. And then we sort of progressed to uh, proper proper ball. But we even devised our own rules. So we, uh, we no, I said about the racquetball when mm. we, played, we played racquetball with a squash racket as a warm-up. So we've done, we've done lots of weird mm. things, and, and the training would be not as people people would see it. We just make it up as we go along. It sort of works. I mean, stru- structures are there to be broken down. We just go with the flow, mm. and if it if it feels good, then we do it. If not, then we won't bother. A lot of coaches are very scientific, and they map it out, you know, day to day, week to week, and you don't you don't feel like that's how you work. I've never worked like that. Yeah. It's not probably a good thing to say. Um, <laughs> it's probably not a good thing to say because if people hear this, they think that you no, know, perhaps that's laziness or it's just I, I don't know. Just I mean, I've had a lot of kids who've been number one in the country in the UK. I've got one girl now who I started off, and she's now number one. Um, the plan is we just go with the flow. Yeah. And well, each kid is different, right? You know. Each kid I coach in personality. I don't coach on. I get the best out of them depending on how they are. If they're really introvert, then I have to find a way to, to get them to come out of themselves a little bit. Mm. If they're extrovert, maybe they're too extrovert, and I need to you know taper them down a bit. But the, each kid's different. Yeah. Right. So you 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 tailor your coaching. Yeah. The structure's the same. You teach them a drop. You teach them a drive. You teach them a lob. But you've got to teach them how to be a personality in the game. Mm. Look at it. We we watched the squash this week. Each of these people have got personalities. Rami, personality. Shabagi's different personality. They're all different personalities. Yep. So they all need to be coached differently. Right. right. You cannot coach the same. Right. It's just the way I've always, I've always done it. Some coaches will disagree with that. They think that it has to be a much more... My way, my system, yeah. So <coughs> let's talk about the game today and what's interesting about the game. Um, we uh, parody. We talked about this a couple of years ago. Yep. How do you, how do you think that's turned out for for having fun at, you know prize money parody? I can never understand Wimbledon actually. The Wimbledon is the most bizarre thing. They're offering parity against a game that's not played to, to the same, same level. Right. Because the guys playing best of five and the girls playing best of three. We talked about it this week. <clears throat> you know, with the lowering of the ten mm-hmm. and you know, <clears throat> changing the scoring, how the men and then the women, and you yep. know now the ten's been lowered. Yep. And we were saying, you know, it's it's just like tennis. Where there's no reason now why they don't play three out of five for the Grand Slams for for tennis. There's no reason. And and now the men's and the women's game in squash is basically it's the same. It's the same. It's the same. Right? It's just that one's a female, one's a right. male. Right. So we don't have the bizarre thing of the ten being lowered and raised between games. Right. So it makes it a viewable game because you can actually timetable things better. Yep. Uh, before the organisers had to worry about. Changing the tin height between games. We don't do that now. It's, mm-hmm. it's just one continuous. How do you think it's going to change the women's game, if at all? <clears throat> oh, it's going to change it a lot. It, we've seen it this week already. We've seen how the, the boast, if, the, if they've got a great girl who's putting a two wall boast in. So they're going to need to get fitter. And they need to get faster. But it's a challenge. But it's a forward challenge. It's not a retrograde step on the game. I think it's a, it's a really good step on the game. Mm-hmm. Let's make these girls athletes, yeah. even more than they are now. Right. 
Um, so I, I think it's exciting. I think any of the girls who are negative about it need to look at themselves and think how they can embrace it rather than be negative about it. I think it's going to make the game more exciting for the girls. Yeah. It's got to. Yeah. They're, going to have to, they're going to have to work to get to the front of the court because anyone who's good... We saw it in a couple of games yesterday, Dipika Palikau, um, putting the ball in against, against Joelle, who's, who's a racehorse. But she needs to, she needs to be out on the flat. You know, yeah. she needs to be really getting out the front of the court now. Yeah, yeah to cover it. Yeah. So this, you know, I think it's interesting times. Yeah. I think it's really good, yeah. especially for the you know the youngsters like the Goha, Habiba Mohammed. Uh, the, these, El Shabini these, this afternoon. El Shabini, but she struggled a little bit. You know, yeah. Donna was yeah. Donna was putting in some great. There yeah. was a fantastic boast, which he played in the in the second game, mm. which really highlighted it. Uh, that you know, unless those girls are getting up on the tee, they they're gonna find it hard. So yeah. they're gonna have to really, really push on now, which is great. Yeah. I think it's great. I think it's good good for the game, 100%. What about uh, Olympics, and IOC, and and the the joys of uh, of that whole process? Oh dear, <coughs> I don't think anyone read Daryl's. Uh, yeah, Daryl did a report in a local paper near to us and. <clears throat> His um, his quotation, but I'll, I'll say corporate idiots, mm. <laughs> um, which was tweeted quite a lot, and I'd have to go along with that. Well, FIFA's been investigating at the moment. Wouldn't it be interesting? Mm. Wouldn't it be really interesting if somebody did the same to the IOC? Mm. And I'm not going to say that they have or they haven't. Just out of interest, wouldn't it be interesting yeah. to see what lies behind a lot of what goes on at these uh, IOC meetings? Um, <clears throat> I think it's very interesting also that um, Mike Lee, who was, I think, part of the, the bid team. Yeah, Vera Communications, and they teamed up with Surfing. Uh, you've heard it already, so... Yeah. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. Mm. <clears throat> what a coincidence um, that Surfing are in, and, and we let Mike Lee go. <clears throat> so, I think there has to be questions about our bid. Uh, and, and the way that it's gone about in the last few years and mm. the three bids that we've done and <clears throat> if you always do what you do then you always get what you get and it's about time that we did something different yeah. and I think Nick said that recently Nick Matthews said that recently yeah. that maybe the PSA should get involved if we're going to do it again yeah. Um, yeah. because I don't think the WSF I'm afraid to say I don't think they've done a particularly good, a, good job right. from all the things I've read and all the things I've heard doesn't feel that they've done as good a job as perhaps um, a more professional body could have done. Now they're not a professional body, the WSF. They've got Andrew Shelley and, and a couple of other people working for it. The PSA are a full-time professional body. Right. Probably more in touch with the game than the WSF. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's time for us to look at a different way if we're going to go for it again. I'm not sure we should. I'm not. I'm, it, are we ever going to get in? I'm not sure. Dale no. did put a tweet out the other day, which was quite funny. He was training with Adrian Waller. And he, he did say that he's training very hard at the moment for the 2044 Olympics. <laughs> Perhaps we should just get on and, and make the game as good as we can. And if they want us at some stage, fantastic. If not, let's not cry over spilt milk. What about uh, squash in England? And, and you know, it seems like everybody's saying there's, a, there's been a decline, places have closed participation's down what are, you, what, are you, what are you seeing you and I talked about this in relation to racquetball and how that's really become a, a core part of, of the squash uh, scene in England in Great Britain 
I don't mind speaking my mind. This question in the UK, it's 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 not particularly great. It's it's suffered in the last few years for for a various amount of reasons. There, the the leisure the leisure world with its gyms and probably the governing bodies inability to to master master their strategy mm. to get people to play probably too hooked up on the elite side and not on the participation side mm-hmm. has the horse bolted possibly um, I mean they're trying they're, they're, they're restructuring their whole organisation they've lost a lot of funding they're down to 20 odd people from 70 <clears throat> they had, I thought they had 50 they had 70 they had 70 um, wow. they're putting lots of things in place which could or could not work the most <clears throat> one of the most important things for me is 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 the coaches that we've got mm. if we haven't got good coaches and we haven't got coaches that are mentored and and, and looked after you know, it's no good qualifying people then say you know off you go you passed your driving test now you're a Formula One driver mm. it, it, it doesn't work like that you know, it takes a bit of time to, to get into coaching and, and these people need some help. Unless we've, we've got the workforce, coaches' workforce in place, mm. that are able to deliver things in these places, then there's no good looking at clubs to try and expand on going to schools mm. if you've not got the workforce to do it. Mm. So the most important thing for me is to, to make a workforce that's a viable workforce of quality that will engage people to play squash. Mm then we'll get somewhere. If we do it, as we say, arse about face, um, and just trying to put loads of new initiatives in place without the workforce, we'll, we'll get the same old thing. We'll get lots of named, headlined things, but in the end, we won't get more people playing. Mm. Um, it's a good sport. It's a good sport for kids to play. It's a good sport for adults to play. Um, and I'm worried that it's, it's maybe not in good hands, maybe. Mm. Uh, and you know, as someone who works, that's my job, it's my family's job, mm. then I've got to be concerned with that. Well, it seems like in the last 10, 15 years, last dozen years, it's really gone, un- unlike what's happened <coughs> in the States where it's been on an upward trajectory. The States are the biggest participation country in the world for squash. I think it's got 1.9 million players. Whereas in the UK, the latest active people survey had a drop in the right. number of people playing, mm. uh, <clears throat> which is pretty worrying. The worst drop is in the in the in the junior population, uh, up to 25s. Mm. Um, that's even more worrying mm. that the younger people are not taking the sport up. So, I certainly you know the company I'm involved in, uh, our our family's involved in, has has majored on getting people to play, and we've been quite successful where we are. And getting more people engaged, but we're just an isolated. You know, we're trying our hardest to spread the word, but there's not enough of us in the moment. So we're, we're actually we're actively looking for coaches to try and uh, spread the word and, and do things that we are doing, but mm. elsewhere in the UK. So we're mm. we're trying to do a thing outside of what the governing body are doing. Mm. Um, mm. Doesn't matter. Running parallel doesn't really matter. You know, in the end of the day, we're all trying to get more people to play the sport. Yeah. Yeah. And through a lifetime, it seemed like one of the interesting things about UK racquetball is how it is a sport that helps extend a squash player's life. And a club's life. And a club's life because they, they, they stay on as members. It's been one of the most important things that's happened in the UK to keep clubs alive. And 
For years, England squash didn't want to have anything to do with racquetball. It was a pariah. But had they not embraced it, then we would have lost more clubs than we've lost already. Mm. Uh, clubs that were intrinsically squash clubs with an aging population would have had no- nothing else to do but lose their players. With racquetball, that offered them a lifeline. Um, if you take someone like Hallamshire, Nick Matthews' club, they've got more racquetball players at the club than they've got squash players. So what would have happened if, if racquetball hadn't been around? Mm. Is that club would have probably lost its squash courts. Wouldn't have had club courts built, which is what's, what's happened recently. They would have lost theirs, mm. and it would have been more tennis courts built. Right. So it does worry me that they want to, in the UK, change the name of the game. Yeah. They want to do all the things that it's taken years to build um, and alienate, alienate the, the racquetball population who have helped them to probably survive. Survive, right. I think they're changing their tune slightly because the racquetball, the racquetball members and players in the UK have quite a lot of power having been older squash players been involved with the game a long time. So they've, they've been around the sport for a long time mm-hmm. and they hold quite a lot of power. Um, so we need a bit of racquetball people power. Um, because it will help the squash in the end because the facilities will stay open and if we get more people playing squash again yeah. they'll have places to play it's no good getting people to play and they've got nowhere to no play course, them, you know yeah. right. it's very rare to get many courts built again there's a few clubs putting some more courts in but it's very slow mm. it's very slow now no big enormous big new complexes have been, right. been built in the UK there so. used to be these great facilities with you know 15 courts 20 courts and all that and and Bromley, all gone, right. gone, you know, they, they've gone yeah. they've gone um you know, I, I've been tentatively investigating building a club in, in, in the southeast. You know, I, I want a 12, 13 court club um, with a glass court. And, and that's something that, as a family, we'd love to build. Um, but as a usual, the, the thing that sort of holds it back is uh, dollars, pounds, and things like that. But the wheel's there, it's so that we can get it done. But yeah. it, would, it would work. It would work. If you put the right other sports in with it, yeah. then you can have a viable centre. And, and then you can have a viable centre that works. It works on the continent. We've still got clubs in Holland, Tommy Burden's club. Yeah. A, a vibrant, yeah. vibrant squash city, uh, Mere Squash. Was there one in Poland that's got, you know, 21? Belt, I, I was there with 19 courts. Yeah. Um, and then since I left, they built another uh, eight courts. Yeah. They've got 27 courts now. And they do very nice coffee. <laughs> very attractive receptionist um, but it's a fantastic club people don't play squash there they turn up on court and put their bags down and they play a form of a game called squash because nobody's taught them yet but they love it uh, so that's what we want to see more of mm. and there's no reason why we can't engage people to do that again um, do you think in England it's partially you know, <coughs> football and and, and all the sports are becoming so big that that you can't get smaller sports there? It's apathy. It's apathy by the people that have been in the sport Mm. to start with, who who have presumed for ages that they can't get people to play. There's a a will now, you know, there's a new chief chief executive in squash who obviously has been put in place to to rebuild the sport. Whether it's too late, we'll wait and see. Mm. I hope not, I really hope not. If you had a magic wand, you could change one thing in squash worldwide at your own club anyway, anyway what, would, what would you do if there was something that you could just do like that and it would instantly I get, I get rid of the WSF simple as yeah and find 
I'd probably put the, the, the professional body in charge with an arm that, that dealt with the, the, the doping. Yeah, the doping side, but even just the regional squash stuff. I mean, yeah. I think I'd, I'd have the PSA as the arch people now. Right. Um, because I don't think the WSF have a role anymore. I don't. I don't. I really don't see them having a role. No. You know. Well, a lot of all, people feel that way. All I see, and I may be wrong, as I see, and there's some really nice people on, on the board. You know, Heather Dayton's a good, uh, good friend of mine, um, who's I think she's come off it now. Going to these <clears throat> far-flung places mm. for a bit of a jolly, mm. and I don't see anything particularly good, really good coming out of what I've seen. I mean, I've seen some. Some nice little tri- trips Memos. around, yeah. trips around, you know, sponsored trips around by Nicole and Borca recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that really engage that country? I don't know if it does, and I'm not sure that the WS WSF does enough to justify its existence. Yeah, I might be wrong. I might be a single voice, but mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think I am. Um, I've been spoken to other people. Uh, and that's nothing against the person who will work there. It's just I think the sport needs something fresh. I really do. I think it needs a bit of a, a broom swept through and maybe something else in its place, a bit like the, the bid for the IOC. Mm. I think we need to do something that slightly differently. Yeah. Why not? Let's have a phoenix arise from the ashes. You know? let's, have, let's have something new and fresh. As the squash seems to be expanding on, on the professional side yeah. and it's becoming viewable, HD television. Right. The, the guys and the girls look very smart and cool now, like the tennis players started to look. Everything seems so professional. Yeah, the show, the showcase is great. It's a showcase. Yeah. And, I, and I, I think the WSF are working more like they were like the old days of the SRA, something from the 1950s and 60s. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I, I think we need to move on from that. Yeah. We need young coaches, we need lots of, you know, high-tech stuff in the game, we need the sort of people to do squash apps, we need the stats, a bit like, you know, let's have see how far people run on court, you know, in the pro, pro games. Let's make it a bit more like the professional sport we should should be. Yeah. And let's take us out the dark ages and, you know, put a bit of sunlight on it. Let's shine it, let's, let's show it off. Yeah. And, I, and I don't think the WSF are capable of that, right. to be honest. There are many people who agree with you. I know. But how do we not, change? You're it? not the lone voice. No, no, I know that, but it's it's so difficult to change. Mm. It's so difficult. Well, to it seems like squash, maybe maybe because of, of its history or the structure, it's it, it is not a agile, flexible sport. We don't change quickly, and um, we often seem to have people who are squash people running things, not professional people who. Maybe they play, maybe they don't play, maybe they've been in the game for a while, maybe they haven't, but they're good at their job and they are running things. We have a lot of people who are just like, they used to be a squash player and now they're you know, running something. We call them the Blazers. We have the Blazers. We have the Blazers running the, the game. In England, you know, England squash is, has a board and the board is made up of the Blazers and the Blazers hold the game back. I'm afraid they hold the mm. game back. No, mm. I'm, you know, qualms about it. Um, they don't like people doing this. They don't like it to be progressive. They like their little, you know, fifteen minutes of fame. Doesn't do doesn't do the game any good. And it's the same for the WSF. Mm-hmm. Well, it's amazing. You know, a kid like you who's sneaking into 
the court, you know, to, to play. That's exactly what you know we have to prevent. We need to make the game accessible and 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 provide those opportunities so that you are given the chance to play before you even know what you're doing. But we still want the kids who want to sneak into courts. We want like, the passion. We, we want the, the passion, passion to do that. Yes. That's what we want. And then we have to make sure that those kids who would have done that are able to do it. This is why the Urban Squash Program to me in the States, you know, I came here in 98 to coach in Boston for a summer. And um, so obviously Squash Busters was one of the first um, with yeah. Mark Lewis, I think it was. Uh, uh, Greg Zeff. Greg Zeff. Yeah, right. To me, that was fantastic. Mm. And now seeing the Urban Squash Program expand as it does, um, I think that's one of the best things that's come out of the States. Mm. Well, Stacey Ross was talking about trying to do one. In, He's in, doing in, one in, in Wimbledon. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's engaging. I think we can take that around the world, whether it's in Bogota, mm. whether, whether it's in uh, Johannesburg, mm. places where there is some deprivation mm. and where kids don't get chances to play, then that's what we should be doing. That's, it, it, it's a given. We, we should be doing that. Yeah. Um, why shouldn't a kid come out of Soweto who, who could be one of the best players in the world? Right. Because they're not allowed to at the moment because they have no facilities. No opportunity. No, they can't even break into a court because there's no courts. There's no courts there for them to break into. You know, the, the, the court that used to be in Soweto was a classroom as well. Yeah. Uh, with a window in the side wall. Right. Which they had to cover up when they wanted to use a squash court. We should. We should be building squash courts where we can, giving these kids opportunities where we can. Yeah. Uh, and the Urban Squash Program is, is a great a great example of what can be done. There's, there's, you know, there's money in this sport in the right way, and I think that money, if it's distributed into those sort of places, you now get rid of the WSF and the money they spend, mm. and let's put it into those programs, we get better money spent. The dollar would go better, right. I think. You know, don't have jolly ups around the world. This, this put that into a, a court in the Philippines or mm. you know, in a poor area somewhere right. where nobody's going to get access in, in Africa. Mumbai or... Wherever. Yeah. Let's do big it. Big cities. That, let's, let's, yeah. let's do it because there's, kid, there's kids who are out there who are quite capable of playing squash who are athletic. Mm. Why, you know, we could have another Shabagi, a Rami, mm. just like you could have another Usain Bolt. Right. You've got to find them. And if you, the only way you find them is this guy, mm. let's go out and find them and give them the opportunities. Mm. Yeah. It's a great sport and it can be expanded very easily. Now, it doesn't take much to put a court up. It doesn't cost that much to put a court up from from the you know the countries that have the money. Mm. Let's put that into the countries that haven't got the money. Right. No, altruism is good. All I know is that my match is about to start. <laughs> <laughs> what match? match Are you covering one? Yeah, I think I think we've gotten him through a half a water bottle. Yeah, I was getting a bit dry before. So. <laughs> So SquashProShop.com carries a great selection of equipment for squash, racquetball, badminton, and paddle tennis, platform tennis. Uh, they're really a great place to, to get any everything you need for squash. In stock now are the new TechStream rackets from Prince, including the TechStream Pro Warrior 600, which is used by the artist Rami Shore. Also in stock are the new Downer DAP series rackets from Technofiber, which are used by Miguel Angel Rodriguez, the Colombian Cannibal. They carry a full line of footwear from ASIC, Adidas, Salming, and other manufacturers. For the best selection, prices, and service on the net, go to squashproshop.com. Chris and I would like to thank everybody 
who helped make this episode of Outside the Glass, especially Grant Irving, who is, as my son likes to say, a Philadelphia shot that dies along the back wall.